Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes edgy secrets of B2B software creation. On today's episode, we have Michelle Feaster, founder and CEO of UserMind, Nick Meta, CEO at Gainsight, and Mike Volpe, CEO of Lola.com. Welcome everyone for the category to the category creator podcast. My name is Gil Alush. I'm the founder and CEO of Metadata. I have together with me uh, Michelle Feaster, Nick Meta, and Mike Volpe. Maybe we'll start with Michelle because you're first on the Zoom video. Uh, maybe you can introduce us, uh, introduce yourself quickly, uh, who you are and about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Gil. Um, I'm Michelle Feaster. I'm the founder and CEO of UserMind. Uh, and this, uh, this is the fourth category I've created in my software career. So I'm kind of a hybrid product manager, product marketing geek. I've spent my life building software for big companies. Um, UserMind, I've been at building my company now. It's my first company, uh, about seven years. And uh, we've helped create a new category called journey orchestration, which is really about kind of modern customer engagement across the full life cycle. So super excited to be here, Gil. Thanks for the invite. Thank you very much for coming. And a small uh, fact that I learned about you this week is that you worked for uh, Ben Horowitz. Uh, and so it's very interesting to me, particularly because I finished the two books that he, he wrote, the, the, the most recent about culture. So uh, a lot of very interesting experiences, I'm sure, uh, you've had in your career with him. Yeah, yeah. I helped buy, I helped acquire uh, his and Mark's last company, Opsware. And so he joined HP Software and became my boss. And he's why we're talking. He told me I was a crazy entrepreneur and what the heck was I doing in a big company. So for, I'm here today meeting all of you because of him. So happy wow. to share any stories. That's an amazing anecdote. Cool. Nick Meta, the man, the legend. Uh, definitely <laughs> heard about you uh, many times and very, very excited to have you on the podcast. Um, although you're very well known, still maybe you can give us the one minute uh, overview of who you are and what you do. Sure. Yeah. Hey, uh, everyone. Nick Meta, CEO of Gainsight. G Gainsight, we're uh, helping uh, businesses in the subscription and cloud-based models optimize net dollar retention by doing everything from managing and scaling CSM teams to making your products easier to adopt to driving higher renewals and cross-sell upsell. Awesome. And Nick, one thing I've heard about you over and over and over and from many people who know you and work with you is that you are a very good CEO, like a good person who establishes a good culture. So very excited to learn how a company can succeed and grow so fast and still, you know, institute a good culture and, you know, a good people person. Uh, very excited to learn about that. And last but not least, Mike Volpe, um, also very well known, but maybe you can give us a little bit of your background uh, from HubSpot as well as the current company you're, you're with. Yeah, sure. I'm Mike Volpe. I'm the CEO at Lola.com. We do spend and travel management. So we help uh, CFOs get control and visibility over all of the spending within their company, uh, whether that be travel, expense, or just marketing budgets and things like that. Um, and I've worked in the SaaS industry for a long time, um, including, as Gil was alluding to, as part of the, the early, early, you know, just after the two founders uh, at HubSpot, I was like the next person hired after that and was there for eight and a half years. Um, and also a little time in cybersecurity and some other stuff as well. Amazing. Well, thank you all three again for, for joining. Um, very, uh, very interesting conversation today. I would like to start us off uh, maybe with a basic question uh, that I always like to, to start with. And that is, in the category creation journey, what was the biggest hashtag fail moment? Not the successful, big, romantic story you tell on Saster, but exactly the opposite, the one that you try to never, ever talk about. Um, Nick, you're unmuted, so we'll start with you. All right, so many. Gosh, I have like way more mistakes than than successes. Um, I'll I'll try to pick. I'll pick one. Um, I think in creating a category, one challenge is planning is very hard because it's hard to know how quickly things are going to evolve. So um, you kind of are like, oh, the category is going to be here, and just you like the classic Silicon Valley playbook. You hire a bunch of people, you raise a lot of money, and then. It's like, okay, no, not ready yet. And, and then, you're, then you are over your skis and you have to slow down and all that kind of stuff. So that fits and starts of how your business goes um, and like getting the timing right on hiring and planning versus like in a existing category, there's, there's often this like mythical spreadsheet of, oh, okay, you have every sales rep generates this much in bookings. So if you want to do a billion dollars, just hire a thousand sales reps. It's very easy. It's amazing. And maybe that works for Snowflake, but it doesn't actually work for people trying to create a category, I think. 
Anything oh, to add, Michelle? I 100% agree with that. Gosh, Nick, I've, I've lived that struggle. Well, you know, I would say one of our biggest challenges was figuring out who the buyer was. So when, you know, we started our company, um, you know, we, we thought that customer experience teams would be the people uh, thinking about journeys end to end. And they certainly were, but they weren't really the buyer for my technology. And, uh, and so we really struggled. In addition to what Nick described, we actually struggled to figure out you know, our, our whole go-to-market motion. If you don't know which persona you're targeting and who's kind of the core buyer every day that is really the buyer and user of your technology, I, you know, the, whole, the entire outbound motion is, is, you know, very, very challenging to build. So I'd say today, you know, we figured out our buyer is digital and we understand kind of our deal customer profile and what, you know, elements in, need to be in place for someone to be ready for user mind and ready for journey orchestration. Uh, but holy hell, you know, that was just so hard for us. And I think we wasted money and, and we ran so many experiments and we just had to be comfortable that we were wrong half the time. So uh, that was, I'd say that's the second challenge we had um, in addition to the one Nick was describing. I'm curious, Michelle and Nick, if you had this other challenge, which I felt like in the very beginning, you know, I or we were the only ones talking about this new category and um to use a, you know, we're a Boston guy. I've always worked at Boston companies. I felt like I was on a soapbox in Harvard Square yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs about inbound marketing and everyone's just walking by, going about their business and not paying attention. Yeah. And it took like a long, long, long time before a couple people stop and then people see that people stop. So they stop. And then, you know, eventually down the block, you hear somebody else yelling and screaming about the same thing. And you're like, oh, like it's finally working. But I felt like it was a extraordinarily long time of just screaming into a black hole before you felt like you got any feedback. Did you, did you two feel that? Only on days that ended in Y, like only on, on uh, <laughs> yeah, I honestly, that whole idea of like, is this just me? Am I pushing a rock, the Sisyphus pushing the rock uphill? I mean, totally Mike. And like, and it sounds like Michelle might, might've experienced that too. And I think for me, what the thing that like, that whole idea that like, am I wrong? Like, is this really going to happen? And you know, all that, like all the doubts, one of the things I would always tell myself was, okay, let's go back to first principles in like in our business. Okay. In the future, will there be more or fewer cloud and SaaS businesses? I'm like, I think more, they're not going to be fewer. And will cloud or SaaS businesses need to have customer success to manage their customers? I think yes. So if people don't believe now, it's just because like the future hasn't happened yet. So that's what I would try to tell myself <laughs> to not feel like a crazy person. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with that. I, uh, I I called it the years of wandering in the wilderness, Mike, where I was, I remember my, never forget my first demo at an Andreessen EBC to like AT&T and they were just like, no one, no one needs what you did. No one cares about journeys. Yeah. Like no one has enough cloud technology to need orchestration across ad tech and MarTech and CRM, et cetera. But, you know, I, I don't know about your evolution, but I found our whole early, you know, life was finding these occasional visionaries where, yeah. you know, you might have hundred conversations and then, you know, eventually one person would just be like, this is obvious. And so, you know, until the category crosses, and I think Jeffrey Moore is really right until it becomes more mainstream. And I think we've been very blessed in the last year, our ideas become mainstream and, you know, Adobe launched a product in our space. There's a lot of validation and, Nick, I'm sure you guys must feel so much you know, better. Like your, your idea just seems so clear today. Um, but man, for a long time, I just lived on those occasional visionaries where I was just like, I got to believe that they're right. And, you know, I'm not the only one who sees it right. They see it. So, so well yeah, that was for sure yeah. a feature of the first five years. Yeah. And I think okay. paired with that, the other challenge we had was a lot of, um, you know, feedback in the early days that the market was too small. Yeah. Right? 100%. And, it, and anytime you're creating a market, I feel like, well, by definition today, it's small, but it's going to be like, it's the future and it's going to be giant. And you just, like, you have to believe that the, this thing should exist. And also sort of the corollary is that it's going to be way, way bigger than anyone can imagine. Right. And I, I would actually guess, I know your products less Michelle, but Nick, I like, I know your world like well, and I would guess you got a lot of that in the early days. Oh my God. Yeah. All the time. And actually, you know, especially like, uh, you know, fundraising and stuff like that, right. Where it's kind of that litmus test and mirror in front of you. And is it, you get the same question over and over again, what's the TAM and things like that. And, you know, and, and you have to sort of almost just get good at answering the question without really having a quantitative Gartner report or something to point to. But I, Mike, that's like hundred percent. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. in some ways, I think that never goes away because your ambition goes up too. 
So I mean, that's why it is super inspiring to see HubSpot at $20 billion market cap and whatever. Like, it's like, okay, eventually it does work. Like, I mean, it, it's pretty cool to see people that are ahead that it's like, they, they did it, you know, got through the desert as, as you said, Michelle. So, yeah. And what is that answer? Is the answer what Michelle mentioned before, which is obviously it's small now and we're, we're creating category and it's going to be huge and, and grow. Is that the answer you give to, to the VC when they, when they tell you it's, it's not there currently? I think that for me, it's the uh, first principles. Like, it's like, okay, whatever the markets are now for stuff is not interesting. What's, what's interesting is like, where's the puck going? And it's like, first principles, are there going to be more SaaS business or less? And are they going to need to worry about it? I think something like that. But honestly, I feel like I actually think investors are getting a better handle on that because a lot of great companies are in TAMs that didn't exist five years ago, right? So I kind of think it's changing, uh, but some, in, some people have that old fixed mindset from before, I think. I think that's right. I think there's probably something more of like, you know, I mean, our, our A round at HubSpot was like almost 14 years ago now. Right. I think back then it was like more of a thing. And it was like, and again, it was the same thing, Nick. It was like, okay, there's a lot of small businesses. You agree with that, right? And they're like, oh yeah, there's tons of small businesses. And you say, okay, well, the way they're doing marketing is probably going to change over time because it's going to be more about the internet and all these things. They're like, okay, yeah, right. And you're like, okay, well, one plus one equals what? And you kind of just like put them together. I don't know. Did you, Michelle, any, any techniques that you use kind of like solve this problem with people early on? Yeah, you know, I think we were lucky in that sense. You know, we never really got that your TAM isn't big enough. Um, you know, we, you know, if you think about the idea that, you know, all Fortune 2000 companies, you know, have a need to connect together all the life cycle of their customer communications. No one ever said, hey, you know, five to 10 billion isn't enough. And it was pretty easy to size. But, you know, we definitely got the pushback, like, is there a category at all? You know, like, if you don't know who your buyer is, because I couldn't say, I didn't, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, maybe Nick, this is something you lived. Like, when we started, you know, marketing didn't care about all the the full life cycle. And digital, digital didn't really exist. And actually, customer success would be a champion for us, but didn't necessarily own the full journey either. And so, you know, my biggest challenge was that buying center. Everybody was like, well, we get that your TAM's big, but like if your buyer never emerges, you can't actually get to the TAM. And so that was always my challenge. Never really conceptual, never really, you know, market size based, more like, do they believe me that someone's ever going to own this and buy it? Um, so I think, you know, it's a similar challenge, right? People are not going to give you money if they don't believe you can go sell it. Um, but it was much more persona based. Yeah, I think that persona thing is so big because it is, they do emerge, right? I'm sure it's emerged for you now. Yeah. It sounds like Michelle it has. Yeah. And, and it's like, uh, for us, obviously, we had a, a well-defined one, but a tiny, I mean, there were mm-hmm. Like yeah. 500 CSMs in the world when we probably when we launched something like that. I didn't actually know at the time, but I, later on we were able to see the LinkedIn data. And we're like, why did we ever do this company? <laughs> because if there wasn't enough. But we knew they're going to grow, and there's like you know 150,000 or something now. And and so it's it's yeah. but yeah, like that person that is passionate goes back to your point about the visionaries, right? It's yeah. like yeah. what's that small group of people that actually do think differently, you know? And and yeah. hopefully there'll be more. When you mentioned the the Jeffrey Moore, the crossing the chasm, the visionary, the early adopters, I, uh, you know, uh, very, very early in our stage, uh, we have something like 15 of our 120 customers are investors in the company. And for me, every time that happens, I am in, in cloud nine because that's exactly for me what I'm, what I'm you know, holding to uh, against all, you know, all the rest of the, the reasons why not to do this. How long did, did it take you when you were at that stage, kind of still questioning yourself, uh, but, you know, holding on to, th- to those visionaries until that moment where you had the first, maybe first signal that this trend that you were talking about for years is, is happening. The market is converging to where you thought it's happening. I mean, so we've been at this journey almost seven years. And I think our big, you know, one big compelling point, uh, we've been working Forrester for years and Joanna told us she's going to write a wave, right? First, she wrote a market scope or a market note or whatever it was. And it was like, hallelujah. I mean, this is what you need. Uh, you know, you need an analyst firm to kind of help the broader market digest the idea. So that was one just turning point. We thought, you know, maybe this thing will start to happen. And I would say the second one was 2020 for us. You know, both Adobe dropped a product. And I think that was a huge validation. It doesn't work well, but it you know, caused a lot of people to say, oh, J.O. is the next thing. Uh, and then, you know, I think um, COVID just drove a ton of dollars in the digital and really coalesced our buying center. So I feel like for me, there were two points. The, the wave is like the hope moment that it's going to happen. And then I feel like last year was the year it was like, okay, it's, it's happening. Um, but yeah, yeah, scary moments otherwise. 
I love those, Michelle. Those both resonate, and you know, the COVID one especially. The thing I'd add in for me, because I, it, it, I don't. I think people talk about product market fit and all these things like it's a line you cross and everything's magic and rainbows afterwards and before it was so hard. So there's very few binary moments in Gainsight history like that I can really remember. It's all all been challenging and hard and fun and rewarding and everything at the same time. But there was, what I do remember was the first time we closed a six-figure ACV deal that I wasn't involved in at all. And that was like, wow, I didn't talk to that customer at all. I didn't even know they're talking to us and it just came in on Salesforce. And I was like, okay, that's cool. How do we have more of that? And so now we definitely have a lot more of that. Um, and so that kind of like feeling of like, it's not, you've created a little bit of a machine and it's not a hundred percent dependent on you. Uh, I think as an entrepreneur, that's something for me, that's been interesting. We definitely saw the, uh, over time, like competitors kind of at least pick up your messaging, maybe don't launch a whole product. Maybe they repackage a couple of features and call it something new, but then they claim to have this thing, which, which, you know, that means you're in a lot of their deals and they're, they feel like they're losing deals because you're, you have this, you know, thing. Um, that they don't have. I also think that um, for us early on, a lot of it too was just other people starting to write about the same concept, even small, you know, industry people on blogs and things like that. People that had read your stuff long enough that they're like starting to nod and then they're doing their own stuff on those same themes and using those same terms. You know, we used to track how many people put inbound marketing in their job title on LinkedIn and like all sorts of things like that around, you know, how much is this having an impact on like the world of marketers in that community? Um, and those were things that after a certain period of time, you start to see that kind of snowball start to roll and it, it gets very exciting then. I think that's that's interesting, just connecting the dots of both of yours, because I do think there's this thing of when did the big companies or pr bigger companies try to pretend to be in the market, like Mike was just saying, and, and, and Michelle, I think what you're saying with Adobe as well, right? Um, obviously, I'm not judging either of the companies, but just it, it does, it's, I'm sure it's like some mix of scariness and validation at the same time, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you know, it is, you're all, it's always scary because you're like, oh my God, did it just change the landscape and the bar and in a way that changes the trajectory of the company? And then on the other hand, it's, it's beyond exciting because you see this giant, you know, marketing machine pouring money into this idea. You've been kind of this little voice, you know, the engine that could, right, going up the hill. So, you know, I think we've been massively more excited than concerned, but, um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just a validation point. Like if one of the top, you know, kind of marketing and customer engagement companies in the world is saying, Hey, journey orchestration is the next thing that you need. You know, that's, that's been, you know, I think on balance, much more good than bad for us. Um, cool moments. Definitely. cool. Moments. Let's cheer to that. Uh, I like that. I'm going to pour myself another one. Let's take a moment. Okay. <laughs> there it is. Cheers, everyone. Happy Friday. Yeah. Uh, particularly in the category creation, I'm interested to learn from the three of you. If you had to distill, like, I don't know, three to five of the factors that were, you know, in orders of magnitude, they were like exponential that really changed the, the direction for you. And, you know, I, I, I did some research. I remember uh, with HubSpot, if I'm not mistaken, I, you know, I'm a customer for maybe a decade now. I remember when you had, uh, when, when HubSpot had the website. A ranker, I think, or ranking tool that was a free, a freebie that I looked somewhere and yeah, I think website grader, yeah, website grader. There's like hundreds of thousands of downloads. Someone told me that that you got maybe in the millions today, and there was the um, certification program that became extremely uh, successful. The inbound.org. Uh, can you maybe, Mike? Maybe you can start. Maybe you can tell us about some of those well-known and less-known uh, elements. I think, especially if you're selling into the SMB world there's rarely like a lightning strike that just ignites everything. Um, I've lived that a little bit in the enterprise and you sign that multi-million dollar deal or your first, you know, $5 million, maybe it's a $10 million three-year deal. Those can be like, wow, it, it, just does, it doesn't exist as much in the SMB and the SMB is much more about, you know, climbing Kilimanjaro and it's one step at a time. And maybe you have your pace quickens like a little bit, but there's no, there's nothing that accelerates you a thousand feet. So for us, it was a lot of things. It was like website grader was super successful in the early days and over time just got used, you know, more and more and more. Our blog and all of our content, our SEO really grew a ton, especially in the early days. You know, in little things, it's like we'd, uh, the first webinar we ever did, uh, we used all the, the email addresses we were gathering from website grader. So we actually had a good, like healthy list to build off of. And we got 500 people to sign up for a webinar, which was great for early small company, whole companies, maybe 15 people at the time. So you're like, okay, there's something here. And then it was like a couple of years later, we kept growing and growing. And we actually had a webinar 
about using Twitter for marketing. And this is back in like late 07, maybe early 08, something like that. And we had something that was like 5,000 people signed up for it. And so it's, but again, none of those one things like completely changed the trajectory of the business. It's just like you're kind of building off the success and like growing over time. So it's, it's like you're building a giant cathedral, but it's, it's one brick at a time. And you're just, you know, you hire a couple more people so you can lay a couple more bricks every day and you're kind of, but it's just, it, it really is this kind of like incremental thing. The good part about that is there's usually no, no one thing that can totally stop you in your tracks either, but it's definitely, it can be frustrating because I think it, it can be a little slower to get going, to be honest. And how do you set the, the how do you set the foundation or the culture or I don't know that they, that, that creative uh, creative environment in HubSpot in the early days so that someone comes up with the website rank you know with, mm. like with that tool how, how does that happen yeah I mean that that particular one was Darmesh one of the co-founders and so you know that that was lucky because uh, he was a dangerous enough coder that he could kind of build the alpha version of it himself <laughs> and sort of proof of concept and things like that and we started to do a little marketing around it and it got a lot of traction um, but I think what we tried to do early on at least there was um, have a strong culture of you know ownership a strong culture of allowing people to have some goals but sort of figure out how they wanted to meet those goals and just overall like a really strong entrepreneurial culture I even think back to um, you know today about half of the revenue at HubSpot, comes through channel. So marketing partners, marketing agencies around the world, half of the revenue, and it's like, I don't know, billion plus run rate of revenue now, all very small SaaS deals, right? It's interesting. But the first rep who wanted to do some partner deals, we, t- we told them no. We said, this is a bad idea. Come on, it's SaaS. Like the internet's about disintermediation. Like why would anybody buy from someone else? And like the margin and then this, and they just like go direct, like, you know, it, it makes no sense. Like that's old school. That's, you know, enterprise license. Like why, why, why? It doesn't make any sense. doesn't make any sense. And continuously just told him no, no, no. And finally, like he, he just started doing it. And we finally had to sit down and tell him, it's like, well, if you, like, if you keep hitting your quota, like this is fine. But like the second you miss your quota, like you're not doing this anymore. And he just kept crushing his quota. And then we said, okay, you can hire a couple people and hire a couple more, hire a couple more. And this, this guy's Pete Caputa, it's kind of a, it's sort of a well-known story within the walls of HubSpot. And he ended up being like VP of sales, like number wow. two, driving tons of revenue through the IPO, everything. He's CEO of Databox now. And just, I mean, built a gigantic portion of the organization um, and did something that n- not only was it entrepreneurial, but we, we told him not to do it. We told him it was a stupid <laughs> idea, right? And so we, we built enough independence there that, that I mean, the CMO, the CEO, Halligan was telling him this, like, we could tell him it's a stupid idea, don't do it. And he still did it and still made it work, right? So in some ways, especially early on, it was kind of just a special place culturally, but there were lots of weird examples of things like that. That is a badass example. That's amazing. Nick Meta, I remember talking to uh, Anthony Canada maybe four years ago, and he was raving about, uh, he was mentioning the looking for CSM on LinkedIn to see that, that curve grow. Uh, so I don't know how, how, how uh, OG was it. Uh, at Gainside, but he definitely knew about that one. And then he mentioned to me how the big story, like, yeah, there was the marketing dollars were there, but creating a community that didn't exist before, making the customer success person who historically was uh, a lesser, you know, citizen in the organization, suddenly became a hero and you gave them like, uh, you know, a voice and, and a platform. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But Anthony, who is our first CMO and yeah, is OG is almost like a co-founder. He's amazing. Um, and uh, we, there's, I think three things cause trying to trying to give like kind of some things that are a little more practical and tactical that fall into three different buckets. I think of category creation um, probably fit in all the other narratives too. W- one of them was clearly just like evangelizing. Like, I mean, I've definitely, you cannot, you cannot avoid me talking about customer success somewhere in the world. I, I, pretty much everyone's seen it, whether they like it or not. And so I think this idea that like having evangelists who are passionate and not just me, by the way, like, so our first head of CS was a guy named Dan Steinman. He did a ton of evangelism about it. Our, our, our chief, we've had a couple different chief customer officers over the years. They've done a lot of it. They've written books. I've written books. And so the first thing is like evangelism, but like, not just like big, like your big conference, but like literally I've done hundreds and hundreds of all hands meetings for, for customers talking about customer success or prospects or whatever, right? Like literally to tons of companies, just, Hey, let me talk about customers, not about Gainsight. I've done obviously, you know, hundreds of podcasts and it's all this stuff where you're just talking about 
just like the category, not your company. So that's like one. Um, but it's not this, just like uh, Mike said, it's it's more, Mount Kilimanjaro. It is just like one at a time. It's not like you just, I mean, eventually maybe you get some big stage, but initially it's all these little stages. The second thing I think that's that's worked really well for us is um, focusing on people's careers in the community because you're trying to build this community of people. And right, we were existentially tied to the growth of the CS community. So I spent a lot of time, we all did, on everything around careers. So everything from like best practice content on compensation, organization, all that, to just like just like helping people in their careers, like creating job boards and like internship programs. And literally I've helped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of CS leaders find jobs where I introduce them to other people, whatever. Um, and then like advocating for them in that like career dimension. Like yesterday, my tweet, which was probably like, I'm sure it's like very self-serving, but I said, it's life's too short, too short if you're a CS leader to work for a CEO that doesn't believe in customer success, right? So things like that, like just like advocating for it. And then the third, the third kind of chapter, so we talked about evangelism, kind of um, the career side. The third thing was actually really just bringing our culture and personality to our community. Um, I think HubSpot does an amazing job of this too. Like, it's just like, there's no wall between Gainside and our community. It's like the same, like whatever silliness and goofiness and music videos and rap videos and all that stuff. It's just like, it's all just who we are and everyone knows it. And it's like exactly what they expect. And that's been incredible. And like some of it's funny and some of it's like vulnerability. Like I talked at our Pulse conference about being lonely as a kid in front of like 4,000 people and all this stuff like that really just bonds people. Like, I feel like there's this, there's this belief that your company culture should be different from how you show up in front of your customers. It's the opposite for us. We're insightful. Michelle, what, what helped you? What was, what's your secret sauce to creating a, a category? Well, I mean, I, I definitely agree with, you know, kind of both what Mike and, and um, Nick have said, like, there's not any one moment, right? It's a bunch of just, you grind out wins and you keep learning and kind of trying to stay humble and, and iterate. You know, when, when I started the company and I have this belief, I, I think categories are made when there's kind of multiple big changes hitting the same persona or the same kind of function in a company. Um, and it's kind of my core belief of like, is it a product or is it a category? Uh, and so when I thought even back to the early days of thinking about user mind, you know, it was this kind of notion that everything was going digital, you know, more and more software innovation and tech was being purchased by the front office, by marketing and sales and customer success. And, you know, my hypothesis was those folks weren't going to go look to IT to manage the tech. And as a result, there would be this kind of, um, you know, similar to the CSM, there'd be this operations team, marketing ops, sales ops, you know, customer success operations to manage the tech. And I was super convinced that those people didn't have that role 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, and that no one was really focused on them. And that if I just interviewed enough of them, I'd find a problem. Um, and so you know, I would say to me, that's always kind of my central bar is like, can you find somebody where enough, you know, changes to their daily working life are happening that the from to is big enough to require a mental shift and a category. And that's really what a category shift is to me. A category shift is like the old way no longer works and or there's so much change that there's an opportunity for a new and better way. And, you know, Nick alluded to this in his description of kind of the market opportunity is like every business realizes subscription is the single most profitable model in the world. Every enterprise software company in that, you know, any every enterprise company is becoming, look at Disney, right? Everyone's becoming a subscription company um, and therefore everyone gets focused on LTV. And, and if you look at that, like, man, that's huge. Right. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't, Mike, I, I don't understand your world nearly as well, but, you know, I always had the confidence that that was correct. Um, and I would say, you know, maybe another challenge or, or thing I learned along the way is I had to be maniacally believing that that was true, that journeys would come, that life cycles would get here. And yet on the flip side, really, really humble to try to figure out, is there a signal and the negative feedback I'm getting? And so sometimes you have to, you get this feedback that like you're crazy and you just have to realize like that's wrong. And sometimes in that feedback of like, it's not quite right or our positioning isn't right. There's this like nugget of learning to get closer to like how to win the deal or how to build the product or how to explain it. So, you know, I think that was a learning for me as a first time founder. I'd never, I'd never really had that true experience. And it was a thing I think that I think about a lot is, you know, what is, what is, what is like true belief and where is there room to just keep being humble and, um, and iterating? 
Uh, and then the other thing I've, I, I, my personal opinion is not all customers are equal. Um, and what I mean by that is some customers that you close are truly visionaries. And regardless of your technology, they are in their company pushing the envelope and they are trying to create a new reality that only they see. And I just have, I have found in my career, you know, even back when I was at Mercury Interactive building testing tools during the Opsware deal, like there's that subset of customers that lead you in the right direction. And so I've always tried to collect those people and learn from them and listen to them and, you know, help them shape my direction. And I feel like, you know, my last startup was Aptio and we probably had a, you know, we have, there's a giant council now, but like in the early days, there were three or four CIOs who were just so ahead of where we were and they were just so great at helping us shape our product direction. So, I mean, that, I would say probably those are the three things that have, you know, if I look back have kind of gotten me through it. <laughs> um, with you know a million mistakes along the way. Cheers to that. Um, million mistakes along the way. That's uh, that's cool. You all mentioned a lot of things that are they seem very reasonable and make sense, like balancing act between being a crazy, insane entrepreneur with conviction. You're wrong. What are you talking about? I know what I'm doing. Between like the humble nuggets of insights. I mean, it sounds it sounds easy, but it's not. And uh, And, you know, being vulnerable also in front of a big audience and, uh, and talking about your childhood and a bunch of other things, it's, it, it works. Like, uh, you know, I have a very, really small, I know, anecdotal evidence about it with my own team, but I definitely haven't done that on publicly on LinkedIn. Um, and, and so how do you, uh, like, what gets you, uh, this for all three of you, what, what's the moment that, I don't know, psychologically, emotionally uh, gets you to... take that leap of faith on an action that is maybe abnormal for a regular person. But when you look back, it's like, that was a great moment for me to do that because I came out genuine and authentic and that changed the, it changed the perception of myself and the company. I can share a little bit of that for our journey, which is, I mean, it's, so in us, in what I, yeah, I was referring to kind of trying to be a little vulnerable with, you know, in this case, the customer base and all that. It was, it was uh, obviously not the person who came up with that idea, Brene Brown and, and many others sort of pioneered this concept. But um, it, it, for me, it's been like every time I have an opportunity to kind of put myself out there, how do I go a little further, right? So just get a little like, you know, uh, get a little more human. We talk about our kind of philosophies like human first business. That's a thing we're really passionate about. And so, you know, what happened was like in the, the early days of Gainsight, you know, it was literally just talking about, hey, I'm... into the Pittsburgh Steelers as a, a football fan, right? Like that's like, oh, wow, that's human, right? A little bit, right? And then it's like, okay, let me talk about my kids. And it's like, okay, and you just keep doing a little bit more, right? And there was, we, we so our, our company purpose statement is we want to be living proof you can win in business while being human first. That's actually like what motivates us more than just like software or whatever. So anyways, when we came up with that statement, we were launching it at our um, internal kind of kickoff, like get, get everyone together. And I basically was like, let me, Let me try to be human first and be vulnerable and like and so I talked about some of this childhood stuff and then it really resonated and then I tried that at the pulse conference and then that worked and then I did it again again the next year for our employees and that worked and then I did something even more the next year with the conference and it worked and so you just like do it and it works and then you go a little further and every time then you want to one up yourself so um so yeah it's it's sort of like a progressive process for me Very helpful. Mike, do you have, uh, do you have something similar that, that, that happened to you that you did small marginal uh, improvements on, on being that, making those, uh, taking those risks? We were fortunate that we were marketing to marketers in the age of the internet and personalization and social media and self-publishing was kind of coming alive. And so it's much more commonplace today, but I think doing, you know, we did a weekly live video show that was, you know, streamed and also recorded and archived for years, you know, a couple years, um, podcasting videos and YouTube, you know, the, the use of social media as a company and as executives and things like that, we were, you know, it was, it was our business to do that and to be first or near first in many of those things. And I think we really embraced all of that. Uh, and it wasn't just one or two people. Like I think previous to that, the idea was that a company would have kind of a, A spokesperson and you know the way Tesla has Elon Musk that every company had like their person but you know Nick alluded to this earlier I think it's much more powerful when you have a lot of people that are those evangelists from the company and they can all bring their own sort of 
um, style and even some of their own sort of slightly different opinions on, you know, your, the topic that you're evangelizing. And I think we were lucky that early on, we had a lot of people that could be effectively those evangelists and sort of could capitalize on a lot of those new mediums that were popping up. And I think it was, it was really across the team that we were lucky that it, it wasn't, you know, I was out there, Brian was out there, Darmesh was out there, Mark Roberts was out there, uh, and even like a whole host of other folks as well. And I think that um, just having the vulnerability and that sort of accessibility spread across a lot of people on the team was very helpful for us. Thank you. Michelle, do you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it sounds like all of us had different journeys to the same thing. I, I totally agree with Nick. I love Brene Brown, but I read it later. I, you know, I started the company and I'd never been a CEO before. And, you know, Andreessen did our series A and I, I don't know about other people in the early days of, of, you know, founding, but um, I had no idea if my idea was any good. And I felt like an imposter and I didn't know how to be a CEO. And, you know, I ended up, um, you know, and I'm a very generally positive person, you know, I'm always kind of can do upbeat. And I remember kind of going home and just like drinking wine and playing video games and being like, I am not my normal self right now. Uh, and, you know, I ended up starting therapy and, uh, and like really came to realize that as a CEO, kind of my strengths are in many ways, they affect the company's strengths, but my weaknesses and my own interpersonal struggles and challenges, people that affected the culture. And so I think as I understood that, I didn't know how to really separate my personal ability to like be successful and manage my emotions and manage the stress and manage the down days from my ability to like lead the team and be successful. And so I think for me that my insight was like, I, I needed to be open because I needed grace from people, you know, at times for them to understand that, you know, yes, I'm the CEO and I'm the founder and I'm doing my best to kind of lead the company but that, you know, we're all human. And I, and I feel like the net effect of that is it's given other people room to be human. And, you know, we, you know, I always say to my team, we don't need to be perfect as people. We can be perfect as a team. And, you know, that's a, gosh, that's a line from that Denzel Washington football movie. And I'm forgetting. Oh, uh, remember the, tit- we're remember the, the Titans, right. But I was always very struck by that. And, and, you know, I'd never heard Nick that expression of human first business, but Honestly, I think we'd all be so much better off if we could live that because we're all just people, we all make mistakes and we don't need to be perfect. We just need to pick each other up as a team and manage through the challenge that we're facing. So, you know, I, I think I just kind of came to it by necessity. I, I, I wasn't, you know, able to kind of manage through the stress of, of founding and, and the early days and the hardships in the company without being real about it. I didn't know any other way to manage it. And now I look back and think, God, it was one of the greatest gifts I've been given. I always say to people, people will ask me, you know, how do you feel about your founding journey? And I always say to people, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, but it's made me an, a much better human. Like I feel that I've become a deeper human. I hope a wiser human, a better leader. And if even if the company weren't to succeed, I would count my my chapter at, at, of life as successful for just that reason. I've, I I think I've learned more about being a human in the last seven years than like in the whole rest of my life put together. So, um, you know, I just think I had to do it. I didn't have a choice, uh, and um, and it's been the best thing I've ever done. Love that attitude. That's awesome. Yeah. Really cool. It is awesome. It's very interesting to always see the most successful people that are good at their job and leading big organization and doing the inevitable being uh, the humble, uh, vulnerable people. It's interesting. Um, change of gears. I want to hear uh, if you'll share it with me something that no one knows about you. Ideally, very embarrassing. I'll just give you an example. Goddard, uh, Abel, CEO of G2, shared about getting arrested. That was an interesting story. Uh, you can listen to it later. And uh, we have a bunch of others. I'd love to hear you know, something that not everyone knows about you that is, uh, doesn't have to be like, uh, you know, like super vulnerable, but a story that no one knows that is embarrassing uh, about you as, as, as a person outside of the CEO, founder, usual story track the list is long and there's many but uh one that definitely comes to mind it was a very long time ago but i threw up on a date like like not during a date but on the date (laughs) (laughs) 
very long time ago. Um, there was no video back then. Though. Was there, was there <laughs> I mean, no, no, oh. pre-video, pre-internet. Oh, pre that's amazing. Like, yeah, yeah, like late teenage years. Wow. Uh, it was it was like a long day. We it was like four of us, a friend of mine, and um, a girl he had like just barely started dating, and then one of her friends, and he like hooked us up, and we're at, and we went to um, like a like a town fair, like the old school like amusement park, and. Um, I'm not, not good with motion rides yeah. and she wanted to go on the tilt-a-whirl and, you know, like a sucker. I'm like, Oh yeah, that'd be great. Like I could do this. Right. And, you know, halfway through, like I'm puking, like we're spinning around. So you got like centrifugal force happening and all kinds uh, of stuff. And, uh, you know, just not a good scene. I felt horrible. And she's screaming like, stop the ride, stop the ride. <laughs> like the guy hits the button, like stops the ride. And he just, he just walks over with like an almost empty roll of paper towel, like just like four sheets left on it, hands it to me and just shakes his head. It just walks away. Uh, <laughs> That's so funny I, I always wondered if somebody ever threw up on those twisty rides and I guess the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, so we have, you know, we have two kids and now my wife and I, not not her, different, we didn't get married. <laughs> never, never, never talked to that woman again. Uh, but um, but no, it, when we go to the amusement park with like the kids, uh, she's in charge of all those kind of mm-hmm. runs. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a brave story to share. Thank you. I hope your friend uh, in the double date did better or did not hate you. <laughs> I think everyone's fine now. Hopefully no one's scarred, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. Nick, you're next. Well, it's not nearly as funny. That's a hilarious story, Mike. But I guess a, a, a vulnerable slash embarrassing. Most of my embarrassments are all online. So, but unfortunately, that means people don't. So this one, I guess, I don't know if I ever told people this specific story, which is I mentioned that I, you know, never really felt like I fit in as a kid. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, I was the kid who ate alone every day from kindergarten to 12th grade and just never had really friends or whatever. And so obviously my life's changed, but, you know, that's sort of where I was. And, um, but I, I was like the worst, like, kid to my parents because of that because I always wanted to be with the popular kids right so I really wanted to so what I remember is like literally like I would just like stock like what they're doing and want to do everything that they did because that would somehow get get me popular like listen to whatever music they were listening to whatever and I remember that like like we were we were middle class not you know not poor not rich just like normal like middle class and I remember and my parents were not you know they're Indian American so they were definitely thrifty and I remember like the kids in high school were wearing the, the like Ralph Lauren polo, whatever. Right. And I was so obsessed with like my parents getting me those things. Right. Which are like, you know, it was like a, whatever, a hundred dollar shirt, which for us was like, could not imagine buying that. We shopped at whatever the equivalent of his target was back then. And so I remember I was just like the most annoying kid, like, cause I was, I felt unpopular and I wanted to be popular and I wanted to buy my way into it. So I remember my for dragging my mom to like the polo store and buying that one, like thing and just like later on being totally embarrassed of myself now that I, we have kids i'm like i hope our kids don't end up like that <laughs> nice. thank you for sharing that michelle you probably got some time to think about your most embarrassing story yeah i mean not most embarrassing but one that i haven't told i um i was in pre-sales years ago that's how i you know when i first got into tech that was what i was doing and i remember i had just joined mercury interactive and i went to my first sales kickoff in san francisco and this is at the time if anyone's been to that hyatt with the funky roof and like the mm-hmm. weird open uh, right downtown it was uh, it was there and it was my first time in san francisco and you know i didn't know anybody right i've been with the company like freaking three weeks so we're all standing in the lobby and uh, the sales reps, of course, inciting trouble, ask everyone to play the who would you sleep with game <laughs> and uh, and public knowledge. You know, I'm gay. And uh, and I was like, there are no women here. So, like, I don't know how to answer this question. There are literally like two women in this whole you know sales kickoff. And they were like, no, 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 you have to answer. You have to answer. And uh, and so finally I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And then I was like, I got it. I would sleep with Amnon. He was the CEO. And. Huh. And they, and all of a sudden, everyone was like, shh, be quiet, shh. And I'm like, no, no, no. I, I was like, so excited. I got it. I got one. It's Amnon. I would sleep with Amnon. And uh, he was directly behind me. He was literally, <laughs> the CEO of the company was literally two inches from me with his back to me, hearing me <laughs> shout that I would sleep with him. And I didn't even know him. I had like been in the company like 12 days. And uh, years later, we got acquired by HP and we were doing our last Christmas party, uh, and actually in the, 
in San Francisco in the city hall. We, we were doing it there. And I finally met his wife and he told the story to her that the first time he met me, that was what he heard. And so he, he played it off. He didn't make me embarrassed at the time, but, um, wow. oh my God. Uh, you know, anyway, kind of hilarious. He was a great guy. He was an incredible leader. He led the company from, you know, two employees to 3000 and a billion dollars of revenue. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest CEOs I've ever worked for, but, um, talk about a horrible way to get introduced. So it's amazing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. You I saw Mike. Mike, you must be pretty good if it, it kept you there, right? So that, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> turned out to be a pretty good free sales person. Yeah. Oh, well, my. he also probably remembered who you were. Like that's the other. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's embarrassing, but like never going to forget you. So yeah. yeah, he was always great to me. But yeah. oh my god, talk about you want to just fall on a sword or something. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I know, Michelle, you worked with Ben Horowitz uh, for quite some time. You mentioned him as a mentor. I'd like to start with you. You know, for me, mentors, advisors, one have become my board member. I have a CEO coach. have been a huge dramatic improvement in my capabilities as a CEO and as a human, honestly, because it's kind of intertwined. So can you tell us a little bit, maybe like a highlight, something that changed your trajectory, change your life, a comment, uh, I don't know, a mantra. Yeah. I mean, Ben's amazing. You know, first of all, he's one of the best human beings I've ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've read his book and he, or met him, he, he like comes off as humble. He literally is like incredible family man, incredible human being, just man, you know, I, I he's someone who I, I, if I could be as like him, as good a human as him, I would be very proud of myself at the end of my days. Um, but yeah, no, he's told me a bunch of hilarious things that have been helpful and changed my life. I remember I had left HP and I was moving up to Seattle to take my first uh, startup gig. So I joined a company called Aptio as employee 17 and uh, running product. And I had never been in a company so small and I was moving cross country. I didn't know anybody in Seattle and I'd never been an exec before. And I remember calling him and I'm like, Ben, they say that like these three things are like the, th- I'm doing the three most stressful things at the same time. Oh, and I was breaking up with my girlfriend. So that was the third one. And he said to me, you know, Michelle, For some people, maximum discomfort means maximum growth. And you're one of those people. And uh, honestly, if I look at all the best, like all of the things that have helped me grow the most, they're all things that scared me initially. They were all things that caused great discomfort. And frankly, you know, I look at myself and I've become a different person by going through those experiences. But you know, when I look at people, when I think about hiring, that's a thing I ask myself, like, is this person a person who will thrive in discomfort? Because I think unless you are that person, it's very hard to succeed in startups because so much of what we do is defined by like problem solving. So that's kind of one piece of advice he gave me that changed my life. Maybe the other thing is he he once told me, this is in my time at HP. So Mercury was a very direct culture and we were acquired into HP, which was a much more careful culture and a much more hierarchical culture and a politically correct culture. And, you know, I don't know that either is good or bad, but it was very hard for me to norm into that culture. And I remember Ben, you know, one-on-one saying to me, um, do you have to verbally punch people in the face all the time? He <laughs> said, you have to ask yourself, is it better to be right or is it better to be effective? Uh, and, you know, Honestly, it's taken me years to internalize that and like grow enough to become more deft at, at uh, you know, bringing people around to my point of view, being more open, listening better. I mean, there's a whole lot you could unpack in that comment, but, um, you know, he's just been a great gift. Someone he and maybe one more thing he said to me, which is just amazing. He once said, some people look at you and see your flaws. I look at you and see your beauty. And so you just think about that as a mentor, like what better, you just, you, anything he tells me, I, I listen to because I know he's trying to help me be better. Like his intent is so good. He wants the best for me and to see the best for me, but he's also cares about me enough to give me that uncomfortable feedback or that encouragement, like whatever it is I'm needing at that moment. So those are just some examples. I could probably give you like 50 more, but he's uh, he's been an incredible force in my life. And he's often when I have a really hard problem or something I'm struggling with, I'll go to him and there's always something he says, like the three I gave you that just sticks with me and is a tool I take beyond the one conversation I had with him. So he's amazing. That's beautiful. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. That's, that's pretty amazing. I see a lot of that in some of the humbleness that, that you're 
you're showing here in this conversation, whatever it's worth. Uh, Nick Meta, you're you're next. Tell us, uh, you know, do you have do you have like you know coaches or mentors that 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 help you curve the path? Yeah, so I, I haven't. Um, so I've had. Uh, I feel like I've learned from so many different people. So I've had. I, I'd say that if I kind of divided it up, I have a um, one thing that's been amazing is I'm in a CEO group called YPO, and that's like just the peer to peer, like honestly, just talking about your life and your fears and all that with people that you can be really candid with. That's been like the most important thing for me by far. Um, and then for people that I've worked with and met, I've learned from everyone. Like I've learned from, like, I there's so much to learn. Like, you know, Brian Halligan, CEO of HubSpot, such a thoughtful, introspective person, right? And, you know, obviously I've never met Mark Benioff, but watching what he does with Salesforce the week and market his company and, you know, reading Ben Horowitz book and like, there's just so many people but it's not just people that have done this before. Sometimes it's like learning from people who've never done it before. I personally like, like there's a company called Guild Education. It's run by a woman named Rachel Carlson. And she's like, you know, definitely younger and earlier in her career, but she's crushing it. And she's just incredible. And it's like, I learned so much from every time I talked to her, you know, I was talking to the CEO of GitLab uh, the other day and, uh, you know, it's the first time he's ever done anything like this and why well, he's done an okay job. Right. And like, And so I learned one thing I, we, one of our values in our company is beginner's mind, you know? And so I just learned from every, I learned from Michelle and, and Mike today. I mean, this has been amazing and learned from you, Gail. Like it's, so to me, it's like uh, seeking the learning everywhere. Mike, who has been your, uh, your, your mentor, your coach that helped you? There's a ton. Um, the one I'll highlight is a woman who's on our board. Uh, she was also on the board at HubSpot for the first five years or so. Uh, her name's Gail Goodman. She was CEO forever of Constant Contact. And um, I love her because there's no BS. Everything is just super direct. She cuts through like everything and just gets to like, well, like here's really what the problem is kind of a thing. She's been there in all the hard times that you have to go through at a startup and as a CEO, so she speaks with a lot of credibility and understanding. when she's giving you advice about any problem you're facing. She's been amazing one-on-one -on -one and amazing in, in board meetings. I don't know, Michelle and Nick, if either of you have the like seasoned kind of, you know, CEO operator on your board that kind of pushes back on the VC investors when they say crazy things like, can't you get that done in a month or, you know, whatever, right? And, uh, and Gail's my go-to on that. There's times when I just kind of glance at her and she sort of, you know, leans into the table and says, well, like, you know, if you've run a company before, you know that that's total bullshit and whatever. And, and <laughs> she's great. So she's been super helpful to me one-on-one -on, -one on the side, but also in, in larger meetings and things like that. Amazing. Um, thank you for being super genuine and candid and telling all your stories and having fun uh, and sharing that with, uh, with, the, with the audience and with me. I want to say a big, big thank you and have a wonderful weekend. Awesome. Thank you. So thank, thank you, Michelle. Thank me. So great Thanks, to Mike. Thanks. See y'all. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. Bye.